Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients, a disruptive notion that sparked the creation of a new healthy snacking category. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo, to shift the food industry and empower their community and our listeners to make better informed choices about health. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that is why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% or 15% off for military, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Go to podgo.co slash kind. That's podgo.co slash kind. Kind Bar, creating a kinder and healthier world, one act, one snack at a time. Welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm good. It is uh, cold as balls here in Minnesota. Oh, yeah. I love waking up to my phone saying, wind chill warning. Yep. What's it where you are? What's Um, the wind chill warning? Here it's negative 45. Oh, <laughs> that's Fahrenheit. I'm warmer. I'm negative uh, 15. Feels like negative 31. The actual temperature is negative 14 with a wind chill of negative 45. Wow, you are colder. When this comes out, it's going to be my diabetesiversary. <gasps> How many years will it be now? 12 years being a type 1 diabetic. Isn't that crazy? Are you going to celebrate with cake and drink? Yes. I was like, I know it's a weird thing to celebrate. If you want, do you want to explain? Yeah. So essentially, I was a freshman in college when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, like right in the middle of midterms. It's very late for a type 1 diabetic to be diagnosed. And it's a day you never forget. And it's a day that's like really sad, <laughs> kind of devastating. So instead of being sad about it, I celebrate it. And when I was 21 and being reckless, the tagline was, you do enough harm to almost be rehospitalized, but not enough to be rehospitalized. <laughs> so I would <laughs> eat cake, have a drink. So I still do that, just like not nearly at the scale that I once did it. But other diabetics call it their diversary. And I, yeah, it sounds more aggressive. So I like diabetesiversary. Mm-hmm. So happy diabetesiversary to me, future self on Wednesday. I hope that cake turned out. I'm making it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. I bet it's going to be delicious. You're a good baker. Thank you. You're welcome. Speaking of, what terrible thing are we going to, what terrible thing are we going to so, talk about? <laughs> so this week is the start of our series where we are going to be thanking our friends who donated to our new audio equipment fund that we're actually using today. I yep. actually have mine up and running to the best of my ability. So thank you all for giving me audio equipment that made me turn my head like a puppy for a little bit while I was trying to figure it out. I think I got it. I think you got it too. We'll see. So this week's subject was requested by Emily from the Drink Drunk Dead slash Pineapple Pizza podcast. And we are going to be talking about Mariana, the nun of Monza. That's such a good like title. But Mm -hmm. for some reason, 
it, instead of ma- manza, I think of manja. So I'm like the nun that ate. <laughs> <laughs> what did she eat? Was it poison? Italy, I'm assuming. Yes, this is an Italian story and I am going to do my best. I'm going to wing it this time. I didn't translate anything and write anything phonetically. So good luck. It's probably going to end poorly. I apologize in advance to anyone of Italian descent or who lives in Italy. Don't worry. We've unlocked the corrections cubby for for later. We haven't had to use it in a while, but (laughs) it's been closed for a while. But I'm going to leave it open a crack because chances are I'm going to have to open it next week. Yep, yep, yep. A 2019 Lalvo Santa Barbara article by Babidi Jean. That's a wonderful name. A 2016 ResearchGate article by Francesco Carelli. 2016 Il Cittadino article. 2010 Italy Magazine article by Pat Eggleton. Cultural Catolica articles by Sister Maristella Paraboni. History collection article by Khalid and Wikipedia. And links to all these articles will be included in the show notes. All right. Mariana de Leva was born in Milan, Italy on December 4th, 1575 to her father. Yeah, this we're going this is, old. This is real old. Yep, we're going back real far. Okay, I'm ready. No 1800s or 1700s shit this time. We're going back, back. No soap. Got it. No soap. So Mariana de Leva was born in Milan, Italy on December 4th, 1575 to her father, the Earl of Monza. Don Martino de Leva and her mother, Virginia Maria Marino, who was the daughter of the richest man in Milan, banker Tommaso Marino. Nice. So wealthy, fl- wealthy family, wealthy family, <laughs> wealthy family. <laughs> She's from a wealthy family. <laughs> we are gathered here together to join this nun to Jesus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sweet wow. Virginia was a widow from a previous marriage to Ercole Pio, Count of Sassuolo, with whom she had a son named Marco Pio and four daughters. Wow. Okay, so she was already, she had an established family before her husband died. And so she's, so Maria is the first child of her second marriage then. Yep, Mariana is the first child of her second marriage. Okay. Fortunately for Mariana, her mother passed a year after her birth from the plague in 1576. Damn. And through a series of manipulations on the part of her father, she was excluded from a large inheritance she was supposed to receive upon her mother's death. She was just a baby. She didn't know. Virginia had wanted to leave half of her possessions to Mariana and the other half to Marco, who was her one and only son. That's kind of shitty. Yeah. Like all the other kids, screw you. Yeah. And that's why the will was heavily contested by her four other children who were understandably pissed about being excluded from her will. Yeah. Yeah. The will was contested for some time with a compromise being reached in 1580 between Don Leva and Virginia's other children in which the inheritance would be split into 12 parts with five going to himself and Mariana with the other seven going to Marco and his sisters. And upon her mother's death, Mariana was sent to live with her aunt, Mariana de Leva Sonsinso, who was noted as being a horrible and bigoted woman who refused to let her niece live with her and her sons because it wasn't, quote, acceptable to have her grow in promiscuity with her sons. Cool. So she was fun. And she was also probably the person she was named after, too, I'm assuming. I think so, yeah. Damn. She was instead raised by a nurse at Palazzo Marino, where she stayed, quote, under the watch of her aunt, quote unquote, 
mm-hmm. pretty much in, in name only, for 12 years until she was forced to become a nun at the Monastery St. Margarita by her father. Oh, so she was forced to be a nun. Yep. Cool. The story keeps getting better and better. Yep. It's noted that he promised to leave her inheritance in the care of a man named Giuseppe Limiato, but Limiato never received any money from the Earl, leaving Mariano with nothing. Awesome. See, fun fact about the 16th century, back then women could either be married off or forced to join a convent. And if she was in a convent, she couldn't claim her rather substantial inheritance, which would need to be saved on her behalf to be used as part of a dowry. Great. So it was just his way of keeping the money. Yep. Awesome. And this was like her birth father, too. Mm -hmm. Wasn't a stepfather. Yep. It was her real dad. Cool. Also at that time, once Mariana, quote unquote, crossed the threshold at 13, she had officially joined the cloister to become a, quote, nun for always on March 15th, 1589, which was also the last day she would see her father. Did he die? No, he just noped out of her life after that. Damn, I really hope he died. He was just like, like eaten by like a gator in Italy for some reason. Or, I don't know. Killed by a... Fell wild. in a moat. A plague moat. There you, go. <laughs> you guys got those, right? I'm just going to take this leisurely stroll by this plague moat. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Ye old plague moat. Just trips and falls. No. (laughs) The zombie gator eats him. Yep. You have gators, right, Italy? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you do. Right. It's fine. In 1591, at the age of 16, Mariana dedicated her life to Christ on September 26th, assuming the name of her dead mother, Sister Virginia Maria, following her consecration. She would go on to become a teacher at the school for girls that was run by the convent and was noted by contemporary author and historian Giuseppe Ripamonti as a modest, respectful and obedient woman who made friends easily and loved to read. So she was a nice person. Yep. Which is pretty incredible. Just going off of all of the terrible things that have happened to her life since then, like up up to this point. Yeah, she basically spent like the first 13 years of her life, like being tossed around, told what to do in like a loveless home, basically. Constantly. Yeah. I suppose you would dedicate yourself to God if he was the only person, only being that you thought loved you. Mm -hmm. So the monastery at that time was noted as follows, quote, gloomy, dreary, deeply melancholy. (laughs) Catholicism. (laughs) (laughs) Due to the special arrangement of the individual rooms, that poor monastery did not have only one point from which the view could recreate a glance at the mountains, at the horizon, at the free air. It was closed, so to speak, on all sides, because on the right, the garden of the Osseo house surrounded it with tall plants. In the morning, the rustic rooms of the monastery removed what little passage that the wall of the city could have given, the church obstructed everything at noon and finally the entrance door to the west with a bolt. So basically you couldn't see outside at all from inside this monastery. Awesome. Like you're already allowed so few pleasures in life. Mm-hmm. You can't even like see the sunset for free. Yep. <laughs> that sucks. <Yep. laughs> in 1597, Mariana, now 22, met Count Giovanni Paolo Osio, who lived next door to the convent. It's just moved in. Well, he had like his estate was next door. No, but it just sounds really funny because it makes you think of like, like all those old. There's just like a picket fence. Meet me in St. Louis where they're like, the neighbor boy is here. (laughs) It's just, there's just like a picket fence and he just like pokes his head over like, hey, 
couple rose bushes. Yep. Dividing him and a bunch of nuns. Mm -hmm. Giovanni was born in 1572 to Giovanni Paolo Asio and Sofia Bernareggi of the Asio dynasty. Mm. Giovanni, who owned the property next to the monastery and was quite wealthy thanks to his parents, enjoyed going around at night with his bros to commit lots of mischief, such as when he assassinated a tax collector named Maltino in 1597, a tax collector that actually worked for Mariana's family. Why? Just like for funsies? I don't know. I couldn't figure out. I couldn't find out why. So Mariana condemned him for his crime since at that time she was actually the feudal lord of Monza. Mm. It might not surprise you to learn that Giovanni left Monza for a time, about a year, in fact, to avoid, you know, having to take responsibility for murdering someone. Yeah. But it's okay because uh, Mariana began to exchange letters with Giovanni which soon developed into a romantic relationship after she was forced to pardon him for his crimes. A.K.A. she was guilted into doing so by Francesca Imbressaga, a friend of Giovanni's mother. So she had to forgive him, one, probably because she was a woman, and two, because she was a nun. Yep. And because his family was very important. Got it. Giovanni commissioned a copy of the keys to the convent from a local blacksmith, which he would use along with the complicity of other nuns in the convent and even a priest named Paolo Aragone, who was a close friend of Giovanni to go visit. Yep. So that's really gross that you could just like buy keys to the convent if you had enough money and you could shush people up if you had enough money and power. Yep. You know, they always talked about how like priests and, and a lot of like religious leaders at that time could be bought because the churches weren't, then were not like churches today. They were way more governmental. Well, and they were poor. Yeah. So it's like, if you're going to be giving me hush money to go and sleep with one of the nuns, I'm not going to say no. Right. Because you need to keep giving us money. Yep. Awesome. So commence the jiggling. Jeez. Privilege. In 1602, at the age of 27, Mariana gave birth to a stillborn son, after which her relationship with Giovanni cooled for a time. Consumed with guilt over her lustful urges and acts with Giovanni, Mariana began to practice coprophagia. Do you know what that is? Corporal punishment, kind of? Nope. Or she like whips herself or something? I don't know. She would eat his feces. I'm sorry. Yep. She began to eat his feces in an effort to turn her love for him into nothing but disgust. That was a practice? Yeah, there's a term for it. Coprophagia. Who encouraged this? Her religion or? She encouraged it herself to try and. I know, but um, like, was this was this something that like, who taught this? If this was a thing, who, who taught it? How did it become a part of? She wanted to. Daily life. She wanted to do penance. I know, convince her, and, and convince herself and turn her lustful urges towards him to the point where like she couldn't even consider being with him because she was so disgusted with herself. And the most disgusting thing she could think of was eating his shit. And he just like freely gave it to her every day. I have no idea. I have what? no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Like how, how long did she do? That? Was it just one time? Was it like? I have no idea. It just said that she ate his shit. And I don't know for how long, if it was I, just once. I mean, I'd just rather be eaten by a plague gator. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Ooh, all right. I mean, your life's already been hard enough. You really want to go to 
that level? Okay. I know. All right. On a sadder note, she also attempted no! to kill herself. <laughs> what? A sadder yeah. note than eating someone's own shit? Yep. <laughs> okay, sorry, I'm ready. It's okay. She also attempted to throw herself into the well of the convent to commit suicide, but stopped herself at the last second. Ooh. So she probably would have hurt herself at that point. Yeah. Trying to stop. Ooh, okay. So for a period of about three months, Mariana was able to stave off Giovanni and his advances, but she couldn't keep away from him for long. What? Yeah. On August 8, 1604, Mariana gave birth to daughter Alma Francesca Margarita at the monastery. Mm-hmm. And priest Paolo Aragone was there. So he helped to her witness deliver. it and to help deliver. Got it. Yep. Afterwards, Giovanni took Alma with him to Milan, where he hired a wet nurse to care for her. He also had her baptized in the church of Sister Andrea and appointed his friend Count Francesco d'Ada as her godfather. Okay. So for a time, it looked as if Giovanni was going to change his ways after the birth of Alma. Not only had he taken her to Milan, where he was well known in the community, but he also asked a noble to be her godfather. After securing a new wet nurse in Monza, Giovanni takes Alma back to his home near the convent, which gets the rumor mill running given the fact that he's a bachelor living with an illegitimate daughter. Yeah, but he's got money, so who cares? Yep. (laughs) Which is probably, which is, he probably knew that was going to happen, which is why he did all of those things to ensure that she still had like some sort of nobility to her name. Maybe, you know. It probably wasn't just for her. It was probably also for him. Yeah. So against the advice of his friends, Giovanni hires another wet nurse to care for Alma. And this wet nurse ends up living with him in the house. They end up dating. No. At the age of two months, Alma fell ill to the point that Mariana had the rest of the sisters pray for her. After she made a full recovery, Giovanni had her legitimized on April 17th, 1606, before Count Palatine Francesco Diada formally acknowledging her as his daughter and rightful heir. So really, say what you will about him, but it's really obvious that he actually genuinely loved his daughter. Yeah, it sounds like he he did a lot of things that weren't in his character to help kind of preserve her integrity. Mm-hmm. And make sure that she was treated well, which is <laughs> way more than her mom ever got in life, yep. even from her father. Yeah. So Mariana herself, who didn't have a real maternal figure in her life, did her best to be a good mother in absentia to Alma. Mm-hmm. She had Giovanni bring Alma over to the monastery three to four times a week to visit her. A fact that was concealed for the most part by Mariana's friends in the convent, sisters Ottavia Rishi, Benedetta Homati. Candida Colomba Brancolina, Brancolina and Silvia Casati. Okay. In July of 1606, a fellow nun named Caterina Cassini de Mita threatened to expose their relationship, and Giovanni killed her by hitting her in the back of the head with, quote, three blows with a wooden foot with the iron rod of a leveling station, end quote. Whew. That's violent. If that wasn't enough, Mariana enlisted the help of fellow sisters Benedetta and Octavia in helping her and Giovanni dispose of the body. Awesome. So, so like they all can't say anything because they'd all be a part of the crime. No. Yep. And from what I was able to gather, because a lot of the information that I got came from a website that was translated into English from Italian. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that stuff but, gets kind of mixed up a little bit. Yeah. The translation isn't as solid. 
But from what I was able to gather, she was beheaded after death. So you couldn't like identify her body, identify her body. And her head was thrown into a well before her body was buried in Giovanni's snowbox. What's a snowbox? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a big box for collecting and distributing large amounts of rainwater. Hmm. Okay. So so kind of like a big trough. All right. And I suppose it would be kind of pseudo refrigeration. Maybe. Like snowbox. After this, Mariana threatened both Benedetta and Octavia that if they said anything about what had taken place, they'd suffer the same fate. Ooh, so she's now like a mafia style nun. Yeah. So basically the 16th century version of a snitches get stitches type of thing. Cool. The murder was covered up quite easily. Anyone who asked about Sister Cassini's whereabouts were told that she'd run off, which was fairly common with when many women were forced into nunhood. That makes sense. And this tale was backed up by the fact that the sisters had drilled a hole in the wall, mimicking her escape. Awesome. By the fall of 1606, rumors started spreading wildly around Monza about the strange goings on at the convent. (laughs) But we have to remember that Mariana's family is very powerful and influential. I mean, and so is Giovanni's. Yep. And the Osseo family is too, quote, short tempered and vindictive for anyone to dare to challenge them openly. I get it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want my head to be thrown down a well. Mm -mm. Not particularly. So Giovanni did what all logical people do when they're trying to cover up a murder. Talk about it. kill more people. Oh, (laughs) talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the ye old bar and... Nope. He just started killing more people. Okay. Such as the blacksmith who had duplicated the keys to the convent for him. So nobody else could get keys, I'm assuming? Or he realized well, how bad well, it, was. it was. Or he could talk about the fact that he made the keys for him. Yes. In an effort to keep him quiet, he killed him. But did he have an apprentice? I have no idea. Yeah. He also aided in the murder of an apothecary named Renario Roncino that had sold Mariana herbs to help induce a miscarriage in the past. Ooh. So like you killed my potential baby. So now I'm going to kill you. No, you know that I'm sleeping with her. Oh, yep, 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 yep. Got it. Ancino was killed by an assassin that Giovanni had hired named Camillo, who went by the name of Rosso, which is all right. Cool. (laughs) Okay. And apparently Rosso used an arquebus to kill the apothecary, which is an ancient muzzle loading firearm. That sounds terrifying. It's actually pretty cool looking if you were to Google it. Uh, But yeah, yeah, that's terrifying. But like terrifying to die by that because you'd probably see it before you die. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) What is that thing? Oh, I'm dead. It was noted in the book, The Nun of Monza by Mario Musicelli, that Giovanni attempted to murder both Sister Benedetta and Sister Ottavia under the guise of secreting them away to the monastery in Bergamo. Those were the two accomplice sisters. Yeah, they said that they wouldn't kill if they were quiet. And they were like, just kidding. We're going to try and kill you anyway. (laughs) Just kidding. LOL. LOL. I I had my fingers crossed behind my back when I said I wasn't going to kill you. It doesn't count. The two escaped from Monza with Giovanni on November 29th, 1606. And upon reaching the Lambro River, Giovanni tries to murder Sister Octavia by throwing her into the water and repeatedly hitting her in the head. After he left her for dead, he continues on with Sister Benedetta to Volate, or Volati, where he throws her into the same well where Sister Katerina's head was thrown. I'm assuming they died. Nope, no. 
Because he didn't ensure that the one in the river was dead. Yep. Sister Octavia was found on the side of the river, rescued, and miraculously able to provide testimony against Giovanni at the monastery where she was taken, the Virgins of Santa Orsola, where she ultimately passed from her trauma. Hmm. Sister Benedetta was also miraculously saved from the well and lived to provide testimony against Giovanni in court. Wow. Which. That's badass, but also like super terrible. <laughs> they mm-hmm. had to like live through that. Yeah. Mm. To the surprise of literally no one, word quickly spread to the governor of Milan, who had Giovanni arrested on January 2nd, 1607, on the charges of attempted murder of sisters Octavia and Benedetta, the murder of sister Caterina, and for aiding in the murder of apothecary Roncino. He was imprisoned in Pavia, Italy, thus ending his 10-year relationship with Mariana. Uh. Giovanni eventually escaped and was sentenced to death in absentia. Oh. So basically, kill on sight. Yeah. It's like Hunger Games. It is. On Sunday, November 25th, 1607, Mariana was taken by force by the criminal vicar Girolamo Sonsino to the Benedictine Monastery in Milan. Her canonical trial was ordered by Archbishop Federico Borromeo and started on November 27th, 1607. It was noted that Mariana was hysterical during her transfer to Milan from Monza. She attempted to escape, and upon reaching Milan, she begged for other accommodations before refusing to eat and becoming violent towards the cardinals. Awesome. I mean, this woman, this poor woman has actually fought her entire life. So it does not surprise me that even though she knows what she did was wrong, mm-hmm. that she's still fighting. Yep. Giovanni's other accomplices were also tried, such as his buddy, priest Paolo Aragone, who was interrogated on November 19th, 1607 through March 27th, 1608. Yeah, tortured the whole time. For a confession. Interrogations resumed on May 22nd, 1608, this time under acts of torture. Yep. So, Priest Paolo wasn't as righteous as he painted himself to be. (gasps) What? Right? According to Cultura Catolica, he was guilty of the following. Quote, he wrote all the letters to Mariana that supposedly came from Giovanni. What? turned a blind eye knowing full well that G- what Giovanni was doing with Mariana at the monastery, tempted other nuns in the monastery, lived with the maid who was also his lover, and he also had a relationship with Sister Candida Columba Brancolina. Damn. Priest Paolo was found guilty of the charges laid against him, and even though he showed no signs of repentance and refused to accept the guilt, the verdict of guilt, he was sentenced with three years as a member of a crew on the Trerimes, which are ancient warships that have those three banks of oars. Oh. So he was forced to join a crew and like basically do manual labor on a ship for three years. Good. I mean, I don't know if it's good enough, but yeah. yeah. Damn. Even though he was still on the lam, Giovanni wrote a letter to Cardinal Borromeo on December 20th, 1607, trying to exonerate Mariana, placing the blame entirely on the two sisters that he tried to murder. Quote, Octavia and Benedetta were the ones who did evil, and as such, God punished them as deserving, end quote. Okay. I mean, I don't think you're wrong, but strong words. Yep. At the time. Mariana was interrogated again by the criminal vicar on December 22nd, 1607, claiming that she was forced by enchantments and spells, even though she did not, quote, 
neglect fasting, disciplines, prayers, and devotions, and what could be humanly always praying to our Lord, end quote. I think that was mistranslated a little bit from Italian. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it just means she was doing everything in her power to combat whatever these compulsions were that were being thrust upon her. Right. By evil. Yep. By casting the blame on outside forces, she continues to contest her innocence of any actual wrongdoing. Of course. Just for funsies, there is an occult aspect of the story. Ooh, okay. I'm ready. According to her testimony, Giovanni presented her with a, quote, magnet tied in gold, end quote, which Mariana states is the origin of her malady, as it was first given to her when Giovanni first visited her at the monastery. And this is a direct quote from that article, that Italian article that was translated into English. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it makes sense. But <laughs> if there was it, at least, was it like a machine translating it like Google? Yes. Okay. All right. For the most part, it makes sense. Okay. So under the pretext of holy things, he made me kiss a thing tied in gold that he kept somewhat in the Berrettino, which is a cardinal's skull cap. Okay. The red skull cap that from then on, it confessed to me that it was a white magnet brought to him and he made me kiss and touch it with the language to which things was present. Sister Octavia, and I believe that the priest Aragone was a participant in these things. The white magnet consisted of a narrow rectangle of quartz or silica, very smooth and with veins of iron oxide. This stone was deeply embedded vertically by two gold bars so as to form a hollow no more than two centimeters wide. Whoever passed his tongue along that groove had the sensation that he was being held as if by a force deriving from a magnetic field, with the consequent illusion that this attraction worked magically on the whole body, especially if at that moment he had thought of the loved one. So it's kind of like if you if you kiss it and or lick it, you can get you can reconnect to lost loved ones. Essentially, I think so. I ne- I couldn't really understand like where the magnet came into this story and like how. And I tried. I looked all I wonder, over the place. I wonder if they, they believed that magnets were magic. Probably. And I believe because it was noted. Like metals. That, yeah. Because after this, I wrote it was noted that priest Paolo, quote unquote, baptized whatever this magnet was, which would be seen as a form of heresy because it was considered dark magic. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes more sense. Like it was probably just a really strong natural magnet mm-hmm. that shocked them like physically. Yeah. And they yeah. they interpreted that shock as some sort of magic. Maybe. Idiots. <laughs> Apparently that's the thing that like hypnotized her or whatever and mm-hmm. caused her to commit all these acts. So magnets. <laughs> On October 17th, 1608, the Diocesan Tribunal made Mariana aware that her family, the extended Deleva line, formally disowned her, even going so far as to say that, quote, poisoning would be the only honorable solution for them to solve the case, end quote, as opposed to putting Mariana on trial to further besmirch their good name. So just kill her. Yeah. So they would rather just kill her. That's that's kind of on par with with their behavior pre- previously. So, mm-hmm. yep. Mariana was once again interrogated on June 14th, this time under torture. It was during this interrogation that she confirmed the accusations made against priest Aragone, but she wasn't the only one tortured to confirm his guilt. The doorman and doorman's wife were also interrogated under threat of torture, 
to confirm the priest's guilt. So they weren't actually tortured, but they were threatened with torture. Yeah. And honestly, if I was in their shoes, I would do the same. <laughs> I Medieval torture techniques were incredibly effective. And if yep. they didn't kill you, they probably were going to kill you based on how they marred your body, infections yep. and stuff. So, yep. Yeah. Yep. 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 I would be singing like a canary, man. <laughs> yep. A verdict was reached for Mariana on October 18th, 1608, when she was sentenced to be walled in in the pious house of the Convertite of Santa Valeria in a cell that measured four feet by nine feet or 1.2 by 2.7 meters. Walled in is in like she'll just live in that to death. Oh, yeah, we'll get into it. Okay. The convent was basically a prison for former sex workers who were converted or forced to convert, as well as aristocrats or nuns who had committed serious crimes. Okay. The area where Mariana was held was away from others in an area of the monastery that had, quote, a disgusting odor emanating from somewhere in a cell with a single hole in the wall that allowed her to receive food and light to recite her prayers. Okay. So she was still able to eat. Yeah. Mazzuccelli writes that, quote, the gloomy cell of Sister Virginia is an infected and dark place where the unfortunate woman is forced to suffer without any defense the rigors of the humid and cold Milanese winter, like the stifling summer heat, scarce water for ablutions, insufficient and unhealthy nourishment, sometimes even repugnant, no spare clothes or clothing, no blankets, just a sack on the ground whose straw rots in two months and is changed every six the most elementary hygiene rules ignored on purpose, suffice it to say, we know from the memories of other prisoners of the time that the container of manure was emptied every four or five days, forcing the inmate to breathe the most mephitic air, end quote. So she was definitely going to die in there. She spent 14 years in that cell until oh she was, God. quote unquote, reformed and then released by the order of Cardinal Borromeo on September 25th, 1622, at the age of 47. It might surprise you to learn that even after she was released from that awful cell in those horrid conditions, she continued to stay at the convent and even voluntarily stayed in the same cell until her death in 1650 at the age of 75. That poor woman. They completely broke her. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Oh, and remember Giovanni? Did, did somebody Hunger Games him? Well, after he escaped prison, he holed up with his friend, the Count of Landriano Cesare II Taverna in Milan. Unfortunately for him, his friend, the Count, betrayed him. But instead of turning him into authorities to claim the bounty, he recruited others to stab and kill Giovanni with sticks in the basement of his palace, the Palazzo Isimbardini. <sighs> Isimbardi. Giovanni's body was walled up in a section of the palace, and to this day, there are rumors that his ghost can be seen in the cellar of the palazzo. Kind of a fitting death. Mm -hmm. Murder with sticks out. Yeah. And that's the sad and twisted story of Mariana, the nun of Monza. Wow. Thanks, Emily. That was dark as shit. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm a little upset because I could not find out any more information on their daughter, Alma. Like what happened to her? Yeah. Like there's no record of her death, anything like no, mm. I couldn't find anything on her after 
I wonder if whoever he made the godfather was a decent enough human to kind of take her. Maybe. Maybe he took her in and changed her name. I have Mm -hmm. no idea. I couldn't find anything about her. So hopefully she was able to live a much better life than either of her parents did. Hello, everyone. I'm Carol Ann. And I'm Matt. And we are the hosts of Boozed and Confused. Boozed and Confused dives into the weird topics that you never knew existed. Join us every Monday to drink and discuss all things unknown, unexpected, otherworldly, and just plain strange. Each week, we will take you on a journey to learn about things like time travel and who John Teeter is. Weird history like the New England vampire panic. Conspiracy theories like Katy Perry being John Benet Ramsey or aliens. Or the paranormal like ghosts that haunt the White House. Listen to Boost and Confused every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. See you then. So this week's podcast plug (laughs) is Boost and Confused, which is a hilarious podcast hosted by Matt and Carol Ann, where each week they grab a drink and discuss all things unknown, unexpected, otherworldly, and just plain strange. Nice. So if you like our show, I think you'll love theirs, and we will include links to it in the show notes. Nice. And this week's question is from Josh of the Four Nerds by Nerds podcast. Hi, Josh. And he wants to know who would win in a fight between a can opener and a nutcracker. Ooh, that depends because there's a lot of different types of can openers. Mm-hmm. I want to say can opener. What's your reasoning? Um, I'm just curious. When I think of nutcracker, I think of like the wooden nutcrackers, mm-hmm. like the dudes. Mm-hmm. And like, I would think that a razor cut through them pretty easily and you've got that little like stabby guy for like Mm -hmm. prying cans open Mm -hmm. and then if you got like the automated one you could just like embed it into its head and like cut its head (laughs) off so like (laughs) there are a lot of very gruesome things you can do with a can opener versus a nutcracker and like can openers are generally metal so yeah 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 i don't think i've ever seen a wooden can opener it'd be like it'd be like uh scissors versus paper Mm-hmm. to me what about you yeah i was kind of thinking along the same lines but then i remembered oh yeah there are metal nutcrackers like the ones that are kind of like um the hand strengthening tool mm-hmm. which i feel like if you were to if you were to battle a metal handheld can opener against a metal handhold nutcracker the nutcracker could win it could win mm-hmm. um, especially if it's a really shitty can opener which i mean those exist more than anything else i also feel like it could be a draw the only (laughs) advantage would be that the can opener has that sharp disc so you'd be more likely to like hurt yourself trying to make them fight (laughs) (laughs) the the loser is you (laughs) the loser is the person making them fight thanks josh (laughs) thanks for making us the loser (laughs) so yeah can opener wins yep Uh, What's something good you'd like to share this week? Something good. I don't really have anything this week. Let me think. Well, Willie's losing weight. Yay. So, so my golden retriever, my, my good old boy, he's six and he has gained weight in the past year because we are no longer commuters. We work from home. So our like three to five mile walks were now like one to two. And down to like one because <laughs> it got really cold. Mm-hmm. So I, I've i been giving him green beans 
and like lowered his kibble because that was something that I read. No salt green beans. It was like a golden retriever specific type thing to help Mm -hmm. lose weight. And he is losing weight. He's losing weight. He's full. And something that's really, really cute is he actually will save like two or three green beans in his bowl. And then when he gets hungry later, he goes back into the kitchen and eats it as a snack. Aww. And it's and uh, we we keep his food bowl on like a little step stool so the little dogs can't get it. So it's just his little treat. Nice. So what about you? What's one good thing? I was able to get a futon from my office this week from my boss. Ooh, your boss got you a futon? I bought one of her old futons. Oh, okay. That she was getting rid of. It's a really nice one from Ikea. Okay. And it's queen size. So nice. Nice place to take your laptop when your butt hurts from sitting at your desk all day. Mm Mm-hmm. Nice. Got that yesterday. It's in my office now, so I'm like rearranging things a little bit to make it fit a little bit better. Awesome. Shall we? We shall. All right. You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. We are on YouTube. There are links in the show notes. You can email us at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We're running low on questions. So feel free to send us some (laughs) questions. If you'd like to support the show, leave us a five-star rating and review. Mm -hmm. It's a great way to help us out. And this week's review comes from Cicely M via Apple Podcasts. And it says, so much fun. Five stars. I love this podcast a great deal. These two are hilarious and so much fun to listen to. The stories are well-researched and they're really fascinating at that. It's a really neat and fun way to learn about crimes and other things that happened before 1900. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Very nice. You can support us financially on Buy Me a Coffee. You can also join our Patreon for as low as a dollar a month and still get ad free access, ad free early access to our episodes. And you can also support us by purchasing merch on our Tea Public store. And I last week added two new designs to our shop. <laughs> One inspired by our. Bloody Benders episode about the death grass. It's a really cool design. I really like it a lot. And the other one is about the grape killing weevils from our animal trials episode. I can't read. (laughs) (laughs) I do have some ideas for some other fun merch that I'm going to hopefully get up there before the next sale, which is at the end of the month. And I will Mm -hmm. share those dates with you guys next week. Awesome. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.